Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Office Hours with Professor Mitchell, the podcast that reviews psychology concepts and makes sure that you understand what you should have learned when you slept through class the first time. I am the aforementioned Professor Mitchell. I'm coming to you either live or recorded from the great Midwest of the United States, probably somewhere in northern Indiana, although we never quite know exactly where I'm going to be recording from. It's not like I'm driving and recording this at the same time. That would be completely unsafe, but we never quite know where I'm going to be recording this podcast. Today I'm going to be giving you a very brief introduction to the psychological concepts of sensation and perception. What we won't be talking about here are the anatomy and physiology of the human that allow for sensation and perception to occur. So uh, I won't be going deep into the function of the eye nor the structure of the eye, the ear. Uh, We will talk a little bit about the brain and how consciousness and the mind and the brain work together to create sensations and perceptions, but we won't be going deep into anatomy physiology. Uh, In my Psych 101 classes, I don't concentrate very heavily on that. I want students to have a very functional understanding of what's going on psychologically when it comes to sensation and perception. So let's begin by talking about the key terms for this particular section, which are sensation and perception. Now this is a unique section in Psych 101 because most of the terms we're going to talk about are going to be pairs and they're going to be very similar from a functional standpoint and even somewhat of a structural standpoint, but there's going to be a key difference between the two terms. Now, sensation and perception are essentially two sides of the same coin. It's how we get information from the outside world into our internal privileged world. So the sensations are the things that are acting upon us. It's the energy, it's the chemicals, light waves, sound waves, uh, chemicals that we can smell, um, tactile stimulation. These are all things, these are all energies that allow us to get information from the outside world. What we have to remember about sensations are they are completely objective. And what I mean by that is that In the scheme of Psych 101, if we want to get deep into uh, a much more complex and nuanced conversation about sensations and perceptions, this is not 100% accurate. But just for Psych 101 purposes, go with me on this. Everybody gets the same sensations and perceptions. Now, some of you will immediately start jumping up and down in your brain and saying, no, that's impossible because I'm getting light waves at a slightly different angle than the person sitting next to me, or I can't receive the same sound wave. It's impossible because that sound wave can't be in two places at the same time. That's not what I'm worried about here. What I'm worried about here is from a sensational level, if I'm looking at a painting of the Mona Lisa and the light is reflecting off that painting and it's going into my eyes and it's being interpreted by my occipital lobe and my my visual cortex, the light waves are going to be slightly different for the person standing next to me, but for all intents and purposes, we're getting the same light waves. We are getting the same objective experience. If you want to argue the nuances of being a meter apart from each other and getting slightly different sensational uh, input 
then we're going to have a very long conversation when it comes to perception because if that is the big difference that you see, being that I'm slightly further away for the sound or uh, I'm, I'm seeing the same thing but slightly at a different angle, perceptions are just going to blow your mind. And so perceptions are the subjective side of this whole equation, okay? Sensations are objective. I'm seeing the same light waves that are bouncing off of items in front of me. I am hearing the same sound waves that everybody else is when we're at a concert. But once it enters into my consciousness, once it goes through, the, the light wave goes through my eye and down my optic nerve and into my occipital lobe or the sound wave hits my eardrum and goes through all the processes to get to my auditory cortex. At that point, things become a little different because they become subjective and they're open to interpretation, okay? Now, we're not talking about cognitive interpretation and and we are kind of talking about cognitive interpretation, but what I'm not saying here is legal interpretation or uh, methodological interpretation. What I'm saying here is, Everybody is going to experience those sensations slightly differently, and guess what? I have no idea what your experience of those sensations are. We can both be looking at a blue crayon, and we will both say that it is blue, because objectively it's sending out a pattern, a light wave pattern, that we are interpreting as blue, but I have no idea if my subjective experience in my visual cortex of blue is the same thing that is happening in your visual cortex that you claim is blue, okay? This has been a long philosophical and psychological question. It's, it's right up there with if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there, does it make a sound? This is very similar. It's, you know, how do I know the color blue to you is the color blue to me? And from a functional standpoint, the best answer to that is, who cares? And I'm not being flippant here. What I'm saying is that if I look at the, the color blue crayon and you look at the color blue crayon and we both point to it and say, that is blue, that is what I subjectively experience as blue, that's all we can care about. That's all we should care about. Because if I say, hey, could you pass me the blue crayon and they hand me what I perceive to be blue and what the other individual perceives to be blue, but in actually in their head, what my blue is their green, again, who cares? I want the blue crayon, they give me the blue crayon, and we're all happy. The subjective experience, for the most part, isn't a problem until it becomes a problem. And that problem becomes our brain doesn't just process sensations in one area. There's a lot of different things going on here. Primarily, we have emotions, we have memories, we have thoughts that are tied to every sensation that comes in. We see things and we have a mental shortcut for when we see that thing, we react in this way. So when you see your mom, you react in a certain way without having to go through the cognitive uh, hoops to say, who is this, what is this, why is this person in front of me? Whereas if somebody else were to see your mom, they might have to figure out what is this person doing in front of me? How are they going to interact with me in my life? I don't have a cognitive shortcut or a heuristic haven't talked about that term yet, but I'm just going to lay the seed. A heuristic is kind of a rule of thumb of this is how I act when I'm around this person. So it's completely subjective in an objective world. 
Okay, so I'm going to introduce the next pair of terms that are important for sensation perception. And that is the pair of terms known as absolute threshold or just noticeable difference, or shorthand, JND. Now, there's a lot of different ways that these terms are called. Uh, I use absolute threshold or just noticeable difference. There's also the difference threshold, which is the same thing as the just noticeable difference. Um, I prefer absolute threshold and just noticeable difference. And this is an interpretation of both sensation and perception. And here's what it's all about. Let's start with the absolute threshold. The absolute threshold is the absolute minimum amount of stimulation that you need to detect or to perceive a particular stimulus, okay? So, if you were in a completely silent room, and we're talking theoretical physics here, you're, you're in a vacuum, okay? And I turn on a stereo at a level of, let's say it goes from zero to 100, and I turn it on at zero and there's no sound. Obviously, you can't hear it because there's no sound. So I turn it to one, and it's still too low for you to notice. So I turn it to two, and it's still too low. And at three, you notice it. That is the absolute threshold. The absolute threshold starts at zero, and it's the point at which you can finally start realizing that something is there, okay? And again, this is all in the realm of theoretical physics because the absolute threshold for vision is a single candle at 30 miles away. Okay, so at 31 miles away, you can't see it. At 30 miles, you can. Again, this is rounding. Now, why is this theoretical? Well, because there's a lot of things going on here. First off, if somebody were to take a candle 30 miles from me right now, I wouldn't be able to see it probably because of the curvature of the earth or hills or trees, or right now it's daylight. I wouldn't be able to see it. Even at nighttime, even in the darkest of night in the desert where there's really nothing, no artificial light, there's still light from stars and from uh, other, other ambient light that comes from the galaxy. You would have to do this in a vacuum in a completely straight line. But at that point, you could actually see that at 30 miles, you'd be able to see the candle and at 31 to 32 miles, you wouldn't be able to tell. That's the absolute threshold, the point at I can't see it, and now I can. The flip side of this coin is the just noticeable difference. And the only fundamental, functional difference between the just noticeable difference and the absolute threshold is the starting point. In the absolute threshold, I start at zero. There is no light, and I provide light energy until you can perceive it. I start with no sound and I add sound incrementally until you can perceive the sound. The just noticeable difference starts at anything above the absolute threshold. So you have to be able to notice it first. So once I've noticed it, how much more do I need to add in order for you to say, that's brighter, or that's dimmer, or that's louder, or that's softer? or that smells stronger or weaker. What is the just noticeable difference, okay? So if I go home and I turn on the TV and 
my daughter asked me to turn up the television volume and I take it from 20 to 80, would she be able to tell the difference? Absolutely. If I took it from 20 to 21, would she be able to tell the difference? I don't know, but let's just, let's just run this through a thought experiment. She asked me to turn up the TV. I turn it from 20 to 21. She doesn't notice the difference. I turn it from 20 to 22. She doesn't notice the difference. I turn it from 20 to 23, and she notices that I turned it up for her. That is the just noticeable difference. Now, the absolute threshold is absolute, meaning that it doesn't change. The just noticeable difference changes with the amount of stimuli you have at the starting point, okay? So if I were to give you two dumbbells, two things that you would lift weights with, and one is three pounds and one is four pounds, you would probably be able to tell the difference. But let's make it simple. Let's say that maybe some of you couldn't, but at three pounds and five pounds, wow, you, know, you can tell the difference. One of these is lighter, one of these is heavier. And then I hand you a 45 pound dumbbell and a 47 pound dumbbell. My guess is most of you wouldn't be able to tell the difference, even though the difference is two pounds. Think of it to the extreme. I give you a three pound and a five pound dumbbell and you can tell the difference, but I hand you a 2,000 pound dumbbell and a 2,002 pound dumbbell, and if you could somehow lift them, you would not be able to tell the difference between the two. So as the magnitude of the stimuli increases, the amount of the just noticeable difference is going to make a huge difference. If I'm in a crowd of 10 people, and one person is talking, okay, that's my absolute threshold. I notice someone is talking. Now, five people are talking, and a sixth person starts talking, I might notice the difference. Maybe not. But if the three people talking and a fourth person starts talking, I'll definitely be able to tell there's a difference. So the just noticeable difference at four people is one person. But if I'm at a concert and 20,000 people are talking, and one person adds in, I didn't hit the just noticeable difference. I can't tell the difference, okay? So my favorite way to explain this to people, if you're having trouble, the example that I love to use for the just noticeable difference is something that tends to happen for people who live with someone else. Specifically, go back in time and you probably, as a child, lived with an adult, uh, a parent or a grandparent or somebody who was in charge of the house. And usually in the summer and the winter, not necessarily fall or spring, you would play the thermostat war where somebody, and I'm going to uh, kind of pick on uh, my own situation here because it's, a, it's an easy example. So I, as dad, am the thermostat king. I, I want to keep it cool in the house in the winter because I don't want to pay for a lot of heating in the summer. I actually keep it cool because I, that's the way I prefer it. Um, I'm willing to pay for that. So in the winter, I walk in the house and it's a tropical 81 degrees and my daughter is sitting on the couch and she's lounging there and she looks like she's in heaven. And I walk over to the thermostat and I say, did you turn this up to 81? And she's, yeah, I turned it up. And so I crank that sucker down to 55. She is almost immediately going to notice a difference, especially if we could make some kind of weird house where I turn my thermostat to 55 and boom, instantly it's 55. She's gonna notice the difference, okay? So she, after I leave the room, walks over and cranks that thermostat up back to 81 and she's back in her tropical paradise and I notice it. I notice it right away. How can she win the thermostat war? Well, she has to figure out what the just noticeable difference is. If I crank it down to 55 and she walks over and turns it up to 56, am I going to notice right away? Probably not. 
If I if she turns it up to 56 to 57, then five minutes later to 58, and over the next hour or two she keeps cranking it up, eventually I'm not going to notice because I have become uh, just used to it as it goes up, and I ha- she never hits the just noticeable difference. So that's how you win the thermostat war. Remember, if this is somebody else who you're fighting with in your house, never mention my name as to the person who told you how to do this. Finally, I want to talk about the last pair of terms for sensation perception for this 101 lecture. And that is habituation versus sensory adaptation. Again, the end result is identical between sensory adaptation and habituation. It's the the structural side of it, of what's going on. So let me tell you what happens in both of these things. Something is consistently occurring to you. You are sensing something on a consistent basis and therefore you stop noticing it, okay? So, the difference between the two is that in habituation, it's a cognitive effort. You literally stop paying attention to it. It's still in there, and if I point it out, you will start hearing it again, or you'll start seeing it again, or you'll start feeling it again. One way I like to do this in class is to say, I'm assuming most everybody here either has on socks, or underwear. And as I just said that, many of you shifted your body around a little bit and you're like, yeah, I have socks on or yeah, I have underwear on. And they've been on you the entire day for most of the day. And as you start to notice it, you start to realize, oh, these socks, they're kind of, they're kind of constricting on my lower calf or, oh, I have a hole in my sock. I, I've just kind of forgotten about it. That's because of habituation. You have stopped paying attention to something because it's constantly there. In the background, again, uh, you probably hear some, some sound on this video or this audio uh, that there's some wind sound. You've probably just habituated to it and you've stopped paying attention. But now as I say that, you're going to start hearing it again. If you're driving and you're in the rain and you've been in the rain for a while, your windshield wipers are probably on. Until I mentioned it, you probably didn't even see your windshield wipers. You didn't even hear them going back and forth. But when you first turn them on, you see them and hear them constantly. And now that I've said something, you hear them and see them constantly. But eventually, when you stop paying attention, you will habituate to it and your mind will just kind of erase that. The other side of this is sensory adaptation, and it is very different, but it does the same thing. You stop noticing something that is constantly there. The best example that I have for this are piercings. Uh, And actually, the absolute best example of this is if you or someone you know has ever had a piercing through the human tongue, this is a great example of sensory adaptation. And what happens is when somebody gets their tongue pierced, The first few days when they have that stud in their tongue, they are constantly getting neural input to their brain saying, there's something in here, there's something in here, there's something in here, there's something in here, there's something in here. But after about a week or so, the brain kind of just sends a message back saying, we get it. Stop sending me that message. I know there's something in there. You don't need to tell me anymore. 
and the and the neural impulse literally stops being sent. And the, the the neat thing about it is, a person who's had their tongue pierced for you know six months, a year, two years, you can ask them, you know, without moving it, can you feel that stud in your tongue? And they can't. They can't feel it. But the first day, they feel it. It's literally, you can, they can feel it in their tongue because all the nerves around that hole that was just made is still sending neural uh, impulses to the brain saying that there's something in here. Same thing happens if you get your ear pierced. The first day or two, you know, you feel like there's this foreign object inside your earlobe, but then within about two or three days, that whole thing goes away because you've just stopped uh, you, the nerves have stopped sending neural impulses to the brain. So that sensory adaptation, your sensations are adapt, or the, your perception is adapted because there's no longer sensory input. Sensory adaptation versus habituation. Think about a habit. A habit is something you don't think about; you just do it. Okay. Habituation is I'm hearing this noise. I'm, I'm seeing my windshield wipers go back and forth, and eventually, I just—it's a habit. It's happening automatically and I just stop paying attention to it. It just happens. That's habituation. Sensory adaptation is where the sensation, the perception, the neural impulses are actually changed fundamentally. And so everybody, I want to thank you for taking time to listen to Office Hours with Professor Mitchell. I hope that this has helped you understand a new psychological principle or possibly just reiterate what you already know. Maybe you've got some new examples in your mind so that when it comes time for a test or just to use this in an application, you'll have a good understanding of what's going on. As always, I encourage you, please let me know if there's any topics or questions that you want covered in office hours. You can hit me up on Twitter, you can hit me up on my Facebook page, uh, and you can also send a message through the Anchor site where this is primarily published from. So until next time, thank you for listening and have a great day.